there is truly no God like ours. With the coming of the new season, with the new fall leaves coming, the cooler temperatures, all of us gathered here together and praise and in glory of, to proclaim the name of Jesus, there is truly no God like ours. As we continue in worship this morning, I invite you to pray with me. God, it is you to whom we lift up every praise on this morning of recognition of your glory and the keeping of your promises. God, it is in you that we trust, putting all that we have aside to get up and follow you. You made the prophet Isaiah a promise of the Messiah who would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, we are the ones who proclaim your glory for all your words are true and you keep your promises. Today, we know that the scriptures have been fulfilled in our hearing through our Savior who is worthy, who is the anointed one, who brings good news to the poor and set the, sets the prisoners free. It is in your Son, Jesus Christ, that has fulfilled your scripture, your walking, breathing promise, who came down incarnate to be one among us and yet divine, to model how you would have your beloved people be. It is in you, it is in you Jesus, that we place our trust and we put down our nets willingly, standing and leaving everything behind to walk with you. We will follow Jesus to evangelize in your name and through the empowerment of your spirit as we have been called, spreading this wonderful news of the promise fulfilled as Jesus, our promise, did. This community of believers is here, Lord, ready to proclaim your name among all the nations and heed your call, heeding the promises we have made to you. It is in your name we praise, your Holy Spirit that moves us and calls us into action. Open our ears to hear the call, open our eyes to seek you in all things, and our mouths to proclaim the love we have witnessed. It is in your name we pray, amen. I hope that you will pay close attention to the song the choir is about to sing, not just because it's a good song, and they're going to sing it well. But that you'll be singing it in the coming months. And then on the other hand, the words aren't directly from Scripture, although God so loved would be directly, but a lot of the words allude uh, to Scriptures in the Bible. So I hope you'll pay close attention. And if you learn it by the end of the song, Feel free to join in. Drink of the water. 
is good to be with you today. And as we continue in this time of worship together, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 20. Looking intently at Jesus and listening with curiosity, with hopefulness and anticipation. What it is he might say to us, not only in these words, but even now, in these moments as the Holy Spirit moves about and within this congregation. Let's hear these words of Scripture. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. We don't know how much time passed. All we know is the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. We're going to begin today with a story, just a walk down memory lane, not Yates's memory lane, but sort of the, the wider highway of historical, critical, biblical studies. And we need to go back to the 90s, not the 1990s, though those are exceedingly popular, I'm discovering on TikTok and everything else, this generation thinks that we dressed great in the 90s and they're having 90s parties the way we used to have 1950s parties back in the day. Sorry for those of you who have a living memory of the 1950s. Did you have 1920s parties? I bet they were awesome. All the way back to the 1890s. Two women, twins actually, Margaret Dunlap Gibson and Agnes Smith Lewis, went to the ancient St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai in Egypt. And they went there to study the ancient manuscripts that are still in the library at St. Catherine's. And one of the books that they looked through is called a palimpsest. Now, you're not going to be tested after this afterward. But a palimpsest is is a manuscript that's been copied over, and, and, and not copied over as in duplicated, but instead overwritten. Before we used paper and we threw everything away and just started over, uh, the things that people wrote on were exceedingly valuable, and very often the manuscripts that hold the oldest words of Scripture for us are either written on papyrus or what's called vellum, uh, animal skin that's been tanned and turned into uh, paper as it were. And so if you wanted to record something new over something that was old, you didn't go out and kill another animal, tan its hide, and make 
new paper. Instead, you cleaned off the script that was on there as best you could, and you just overwrote it. So this particular palimpsest is very, very interesting that the women studied because this uh, manuscript contained a wonderful series of biographies about women who were saints of the church. The stories of heroic and, and faithful women recorded sometime in the second half of the 8th century. But upon careful examination, and now with special lighting and things, you can really see it, underneath that text was another text, ancient ancient copies of the New Testament, written in Syriac, uh, a cousin language to Aramaic. They are some of the oldest manuscripts of the Gospels that we have, probably from the middle of the fourth century. And so this is quite a discovery in and of itself. And so they spent a lot of time trying to tease out both the stories of the lives of these faithful women and then also the stories of Jesus that were just underneath, not erased, but sort of shining through, providing the foundation, indeed, for the lives of these women. So not only is this a historical lesson or a little bit about sort of the science of how textual critics and scholars of the Bible do what they do, I also want us to use our imaginations and come alongside an artist named Jan Richardson, She's a contemporary author and artist who wrote these words about this. She said, reading about the palimpsest, I found myself fascinated by the imagery present within its story. The pages of the manuscript with their layers of text make visible what happened in the lives of these women of the early church by their devotion their dedication to preserving and proclaiming the gospel message, these desert mothers became living palimpsests. The story of Christ shimmering through the sacred text of their own lives. The word of God fulfilled in them. So as we read this excerpt from Luke's Gospel today, maybe that's a way of understanding what Jesus is doing here with Isaiah chapter 61, which he is reading to his synagogue, his home synagogue. And just as an aside, the hardest place to preach, the hardest place to teach, the hardest place to show up is in the adult company of those you grew up with. Mackenzie, I'm going to check in with you in a couple more weeks and see how it's going. Okay, we get a thumbs up right now. But the hardest places for me to preach, the hardest places for me to teach are either in the church I grew up with or in the seminary where I was trained. I always feel just a little small that I was always looking up to those who provided such powerful mentoring and shaping of my, lives, in my life. Jesus is in his home synagogue. And he's been given this ancient scroll, ancient words to read. And it's a powerful picture for us. Jesus, the Word incarnate, the image of the invisible God, is now in the presence of those who raised him. And he, instead of simply reading words, is setting out now to, with his whole body, with his whole life, he's going to embody that good news. And he's going to invite all of those who want to be a part of that great and adventurous mission 
of reconciliation that God has sent Jesus out into the world to do, to become ambassadors with him, well, to come alongside. Jesus has been baptized. He has endured his own refinement in the wilderness, and now full of Holy Spirit and full of focus, he has come home. And Jesus reads the word of God. He reads Isaiah 61. The Holy Spirit has been with Jesus in various ways. Jesus, in his baptism, is viewed in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Now as a teacher, he's filled with the Spirit for this work of sharing God's truth. And so I wonder as Jesus is handed this scroll, whether he knew for sure before it started that he was going to read Isaiah 61. The text actually doesn't help us here. It's a little ambiguous. Saying he found the place, it can have the implication that he he rolled through that thing until he found just the right verse, or maybe it just simply opened up to him in the right way at the right time. Perhaps, like me, you've had that experience with Scripture where sometimes you have encountered a verse and you just choose to park there and you dig deeply for the longest time. I've been doing that for a while with that excerpt from Colossians. It says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And I'm just plumbing its depths and sitting with it for a long time. Sometimes we choose and we go back to that same place over and over again until its meaning is revealed for us. And then sometimes, and I know I've told this story before, sometimes the scriptures sort of call out to us in unexpected ways. One time on a mission trip in Atlanta, as I and my student group were making our way through some of the poorest sections of Atlanta participating in the work of the Baptist, um, sort of the Baptist mission house that was down there, I was struggling alongside many of my affluent or you know, middle class, upper middle class student friends. What do we do in the face of this kind of poverty? We'd heard about it, we'd seen it on the news, but we'd never encountered it, never lived with it, never had to, to, to kick old syringes out of the way to get to somebody's door to knock. We had no idea what to do with this spiritually, emotionally, or otherwise. What does the Bible have to say about poverty? So I just went in a little concordance in the back uh, and looked up poor. And it sent me to the Proverbs. I, I opened up the Proverbs, and it said, Those who mock the poor mock their maker. And I was hit right between the eyes. Sometimes Scripture comes to us that way as well. There's power in our intentionality and there's power in our openness to how the Spirit may direct us or direct words to us. We're not sure how it unfolded here in this moment for Jesus, but we know for sure that the Spirit of God is in it because this is the opening line that Jesus then recites for the people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And has anointed me. Anointing is an old-fashioned word. We don't do much anointing anymore. But if you flip through the pages of Scripture, you see how anointing shows up again and again. Anointing, taking usually oil, 
pouring it over the head of someone was a way of marking someone out. Probably most well known, it was a way of marking out a king. A king would have oil poured on, on the head, and then that was a mark of a present or future reality that this person would be the sovereign of the people. It was also a way to mark a prophetic call or a prophet. Elisha is anointed with oil. But even more, anointing sometimes shows up as a way of promoting healing. So if we go to the New Testament, for instance, and we read in James chapter 5, James asks, is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church, let them pray over them, anointing that person with oil in the name of the Lord. I first encountered this uh, in a church that I served overseas. There was someone who had been chronically ill, and, and, the, and I was an associate. The pastor called us together along with some of the elders of the church, and, and these uh, men and women of, of mature faith gathered around the person who was sick, and, and he held up uh, just a little vial of oil. And he said, this is oil. He says, it turns out it's vegetable oil. There's nothing magical in and of itself about this oil, but we trust in trying to, to live out and embody the faithfulness of a community that gathers around, lays hands, and prayerfully focuses all of our hope and our energy, trying to align with God's will. We trust that God's will be done. So we anointed and we prayed. The story of the Good Samaritan is a really interesting story. We won't go through the entire story, except to note a little detail. You know that there's a man who, on the road to Jericho, is beaten by robbers, and he's left nearly dead by the side of the road. And some of the religious elites pass by without going over to look after him. And it's the no-good Samaritan that no one likes and no one thinks highly of who ends up taking an interest in his care and making sure that from that point to his place of rest and sanctuary is well taken care of. But it says in the moment, as he goes over to the side of the road in the ditch, he takes wine and he takes oil and pours it into the wounds. Oil had a healing property in the minds of the ancients. That wasn't magical, that was practical. And not only is Jesus taking two of the prominent features of Jewish worship, wine and oil, and asking, I think, rather pointedly without saying it out loud, what's the better use of these instruments? He's also showing us another use for the oil. Anointing also happened in preparation of a dead body. We don't have much of a hands-on experience with that anymore either, but this was either a family or a community act when those who were wise in such ways would take oil, spices, ointments, and prepare a body that had died for its burial. All of these things, all of these things in some way point to one spiritual reality that the presence of the oil, the act of anointing, is a way of dramatizing the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit. In all the seasons of life, through our, our, our great uh, achievements, through the worst days that we face, by bringing the anointing back in, 
we find that God is present in every facet. Sometimes it's good to have something tangible, like oil, to do that. Sometimes in our spiritual lives, we think of spiritual things as simply spiritual. But what a difference it makes. Let's say when we share communion together, to be able to smell the bread, to feel it in our hands, to hear the words, to see the bread broken, to taste it on our tongues. All of a sudden, our prayer about a spiritual reality of what God has done that's quite unseeable is made very real in our bodies. The Spirit's activity and the Spirit's power are dramatized in the act of anointing. It's making a declaration with the stuff of earth of what God of all creation is doing among us. Such a powerful story, and it's found in all four Gospels in different ways. I'm going to read Mark's version because it's going to take us in some ways to the next step. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is meeting in Bethany reclining at the table of a person named Simon the leper. Probably wasn't, you know, the most popular person in the world because he had leprosy. But it says, while he was reclining at table, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 14, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar, poured the perfume On his head, she anoints him. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly for anointing Jesus. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. <laughs> that our lives could be, could be summed up that way. That what we have done in service of the gospel will be remembered as this woman's testimony is. For in this, all of a sudden, we see the act of anointing and Jesus being acknowledged as the anointed one, not only in his life, but in many ways because of his approaching death. That he is carrying the Spirit of God to that place all of us fear to tread. And we know the end of the story that that same spirit with power raises Jesus from the dead. Now, evangelizing is our second word. As Jesus reads uh, Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach good news. And that word, preach good news, is the same word that we get the word evangelism from. And sometimes in church, I think we, that it's become a four-letter word in some ways. 
we're afraid to say it because it conjures up all sorts of images that aren't authentic to who we are, that may or may not express the fullness of what it is we think has happened in Jesus. Sometimes when we talk about evangelism, it seems like a bit of emotional extortion at key points in broken people's lives to say, if you want it to get better, then you've got to subscribe to what I do, then make your checks out to Yates Baptist Church, right? But evangelism is so much more than that. Evangelism, we find very quickly, is about release from captivity. It's about the recovery of sight for the blind. It's good news for the poor, above all. Didn't Jesus say something about the poor there in Mark? Good news for the poor? The poor you'll always have with you. And sometimes when we hear those words, we think Jesus is sort of just sort of resigning to the way things are. That's that's as good as it's going to get. People are always going to be poor. Know your limits. Live within your boundaries. Some people win. Some people lose. But there's more going on. If we hear those words and, like Jesus, track back to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 15, where the law of Moses is brought forth again to the people as they prepare to enter promised land, and the ancient hope, a command that we're not sure was ever fulfilled in fullness, is lifted up. The year of Jubilee, after all, the the, the Jewish kind of time cycle is built on Sabbaths. So every seventh day is a Sabbath. Um, every seventh year is a Sabbath year. So there were special prescriptions. And then, then a Sabbath of those Sabbath years, 49 years, then the 50th year is a really special day. It's as close as, 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 a, as a human society could get to unplugging the machine and waiting 15 seconds and plugging it back in. It's a holy reboot of the entire neighborhood. It was a time when debts would be forgiven. That way, no person ever grew too attached to their property. That way, those who were swamped and burdened by unending chronic payments could find release. It was a way of reminding the neighborhood that we are neighbors first in God's world. And so in releasing people from their financial debts, from their burdens, it was a way to reset the society according to God's way. No matter how much kind of became degraded, broken apart, and in one way or other, simply man or human made, it was a way of returning to God's vision for a neighborhood. And in Deuteronomy 15, I encourage you to read the whole chapter later. It says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year for canceling debts is near, so uh, you do not need to you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. You know, if you're going to have to just forgive the debt, uh, you might not lend. And God says, that's a wicked thought. Then they may appeal to the Lord against you. You'll be found guilty of sin. 
Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. Verse 11 is where it turns. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. The poor you will always have with you. And with just a few words, Jesus is gesturing to a whole different world. A world that was pictured for us as a hope from ancient days. That we, in and of ourselves, have never had the fortitude to live out. Partly because we have a limited view of what poverty means. Sometimes we think of poverty as simply residing in those who do not have the means to move forward on their own in the world. They don't have the means, the wealth, the capacity, and we've attached a great deal of moral disgrace to poverty. But one of the things I've discovered over time is that poverty is a universal experience. Those of us who have bank accounts that are stable and steady enough um, to take care of our bills simply are able to hide some of our poverty a little better. But when we take a step back and don't look simply at the bank accounts, but look at the different ways we go without as human beings made to be in relationship with God, to be in relationship with one another, we can have a poverty of relationships that is lethal, to be far from God, or to hoard so much money we lose sight of our neighbor. We're willing to turn a blind eye to the person who asks. We step over somebody else just so that we can advance. We are poor We heard it in the song that we sang. Come sinners, poor and needy. When all of us claim that mantle, we realize that this news, this announcement, is not just for a select group of people, but it is for us. And it is good news. It says the way of this world and the ways that cause you pain are not the final word. That in his life, In his death, the way he lives his life, the way he dies his death, and trusts God with the future, this is good news. And this is going to open the door for all of us to experience richness, fullness, and wholeness in our lives. Good news. That's what evangelism is. Of meeting the needs, the losses, the hurts, the incarceration of those who are suffering. The church has work to do. This is not just a spiritual reality. This is, of course, a material reality as well, to take an interest in those who are going without. And in some ways, how we have a passion for and care for the poor is going to be something of a litmus test of what we understand God is doing spiritually and otherwise in our lives, in the life of the church, and in the world. If you want to check how far going you think God and God's work is, how do you treat the poor, those who can't hide their vulnerability? Evangelizing. It's part of who Jesus was, anointed, evangelizing, and proclaiming. 
declaring release. Declaring that the oppressed are sent their freedom. This is more than words. This is more than, than thoughts and prayers. This is a declaration that is followed up and authenticated by action. And everyone who hears these words, this declaration, are given a glimpse of what Jesus calls the year of the Lord's favor. Also, also an allusion to that year of jubilee, that year of release, that time when the holy reset by God is upon us. Favor is grace. Favor means presence and fullness and completeness and restoration, wholeness. Favor is a glimpse into God's own life. For we learn in Scripture that Jesus was present at creation, that the Christ was present at creation. And the Spirit that hovered over the waters and over the words that are spoken by God all collaborated to bring the world into being. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit, a same power that the Apostle Paul says lives in us. There is a lot that is happening now in anointing, in evangelizing, in the proclamation. For not only is it a glimpse into God's own life, but here comes, like the palimpsest, this becomes the foundation, the illumination of our own lives. When Jesus reads the scroll, when he offers the words, and we understand it's a declaration of a new day, of a new dawn, of a new way, of a new covenant, the natural question that immediately follows that no one asks out loud is this, when is it going to happen? And after a long pause, Jesus says, now. It's happening now. A number of years ago on a mission trip in India, I took a little vial of oil that I was given as a gift and had never used it in my ministry. It's never been a prominent feature of my ministry, but I thought, I'll bring it. And on the first night as we met in one of those churches that Lena had founded, and everyone in the village came out, one, to see the guests, and two, to receive prayer from the guests. They queued up, almost farther than I could see, around the corner, each one waiting patiently to receive a touch, to receive a prayer, to receive a word. And so I opened up that little vial of oil, and each one of these people just getting by, just scraping out a living out of the dirt, some of them untouchable because of their illness, some of them living broken down, abused, or beaten lives, some of them who in some way or other were estranged from their neighborhood, either because of their success or because of their failures. They all lined up because they believed there was something that was happening there in that church that they wanted and needed to be a part of. They did not want to miss. And as they made their way through, I'm praying in English. They're listening in Telugu. 
um, th- there was no way they could understand what I said. And, it, and, and I thought to myself, Holy Spirit, just help me to know how to pray the right words over this person because I can't hear her story. I don't know all the individuality that she brings to this point, but I would anoint that person and pray. And I ran out of oil. And so Lena ran back to a kitchen somewhere and came out with this huge jar of oil. Um, And it didn't run out. And that's as close as I've ever had to some sort of literal expression or a literal enactment of what Jesus has shown us today. Not only about his nature and about the nature of the life of God, but about who we can be as individuals and who we can be as a church. The challenge for us is to remain responsive and nimble enough as we listen for the Spirit's prompting so that when we go to school and we go to the store, we go to work, and we share time around the family table, Yes, when we come to church, when we're among strangers on the street or on the bus, can this be our story? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to evangelize, to declare release, to declare that this is the year of the Lord's favor. Let it be. Let it be so. Let it be now. Amen.